Well, hello, my name is Sylvia, and my story begins with that because my name means uh, forest fairy or tree nymph. So um, I like to say that I've always had a special relationship with trees. They do so, so much for us, and I really love them for that. Um, thinking about this story actually made me realize that maybe one of my love languages acts of service then if like the thing I love about the trees is what they can do for me. So this was a fun way to do some self-discovery too. Um, but growing up, I definitely learned a lot about being connected to and in relationship with the land from my dad. He's a master gardener and uh, we moved a lot as a kid, um, but he planted gardens everywhere we lived, whether it was you know, little indoor plants in a tiny little apartment, or if it was full-scale gardens when we had a yard. Um, so eventually we found a place um, that we didn't have to move from so quickly, and he planted an edible garden. Uh, he planted roses everywhere we ever lived, but at this one place he planted an edible garden, and we ate off of it all year round. He also planted two Japanese pear apple trees, and they would fruit in uh, late summer and early fall, right when school was going back into session. So I would bring these crunchy, sweet pear apples with me to school. Um, and it was always kind of the beginning of a new ritual and a new routine for the year. Um, so for me, being connected to the land is not some huge discovery that it is, I know, for, for some people in 2023. Um, it's just as normal as breathing or going to the grocery store. Um, and so, you know, I really feel like I was raised to be free and wild. Um, and that way of being is in direct opposition to so many oppressive systems that really try to contain my freedom and contain my wildness. So I suppose, you know, just being me is political uh, because my being is is so oppositional uh, to what these systems and structures want from me. So therefore, my love for myself and my love for the land um, are the resistance and I am the resistance. And, and so that's how it really connects to that social justice, too. Hey, friends, welcome to the all new version of Napcast, a podcast co-hosted and produced by Nick and Mike, two male early childhood educators of color. What is this all about? Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever uttered the words, I just want to listen and learn more? Then, hey, you've come to the right place. This podcast is all about taking risks, leaning into your imagination, and, well, being as curious as we are about how we can dismantle racism, sexism, and all the ism in our early learning environments. Oh, and this is also a place where we can kind of sort of just get weird with it. Together, we'll listen to insights and feedback from various educators of color working with our world's youngest citizen in direct and indirect ways. Ooh, just a thought of that should send chills down your spine. So, are you ready? Did you turn your headphones up? All right now, good, let's get it.
Welcome to Napcast, a podcast produced by two brothers of color. Mike Brown, my, well, my, my name is Mike Brown. My pronouns are he, him, and I am Afro-Caribbean. I'm on the traditional lands of the Kamea tribe down here in, well, is this sunny? No, it's kind of cloudy today. Cloudy San Diego, California, and I'm joined to the 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 Rick James. If I'm Eddie Murphy, you my Rick James. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's Lil John. Um, <laughs> Close enough. Yeah, yeah. Hi everyone. I'm uh I'm, <laughs> I'm Nick Jeronis. Oh geez, all the things that could have been said there. Oh, with the Rick James. But um hi everyone, I'm Nick Teronis or Terronis, and my pronouns are he, him. And as usual, I'm joining you from Seattle, the traditional lands of the Duwamish Coast Salish people. And today you just heard a story from Sylvia, and they I'm going to let you introduce yourself. Thank you so much, Nick. Yeah, my name is Sylvia Hadnot, or Sylvia Has Everything. Um, my pronouns are she and they. And um, I'm also joining from the traditional lands of the Duwamish and Coast Salish peoples. My title is Human, um, and I do have my own platform. It's called Has Everything in Co. And um, I use the pronouns she and they because I am gender fluid, but I also represent multitudes of people who've come before me. Um, I speak English and I try to speak Spanish uh, and try even less to speak French. I'm a teacher, an artist, a creative, a woman, an auntie, and someone who lives by a set of guiding values. So as you were like talking about your story, it really flashed back to a conversation that I was talking to my mom recently about, right? So she grew up in the Caribbean and I was just like noticing as I went back to see her a couple uh, weeks ago, I I walked in and I felt like I was in a brand new spot because she's composting more, which is just not a thing in the East Coast in New York yet. I saw that she wasn't using plastic anymore. She was buying more plant-based products. And then as I was talking to her about what I was noticing and what I was seeing and, and, and loving about this transformation, she actually told me about a dream she had, a dream in which her mother, so my grandmother, visited her and brought her back to the island that she grew up on. And she was shown the garden where she grew crops, the places she played on. But there's something that she kept saying, that she kept seeing. She kept mentioning that she kept seeing blood. Mm. And when she woke up, she spent some time just trying to remember, like, maybe it was a cut I had on my knee that I was having a suppressed memory, or maybe she, you know, was thinking, maybe it was a friend who had an accident. So she was trying to make meaning of what this blood was, but she wasn't remembering anything significant. And so the meaning that she made out of it was about how she was tied back to the earth, how Her mom said to always protect and to nurture the ground that she was living off of. And so I see this shift as a reflection of how she's both a a protector of the land and a being to protect. As the land is just as much as part of her as she is of the land or as she is to the land. And so as you were telling that story, Sylvia, Right, You were talking and I was like, oh, you have such a a similar relationship to people and to the environment that my mother was talking about. And so as 
your positionality as, a, as an environmental, as a st- sustainability educator, as a women act of color, can you help like contextualize that for us and let us know what does it feel like for you to have that at your core? Mm, that's a great question, Mike. And I feel like um, when you say at my core, that's definitely the operative phrase here. So, you know, the way I really understand myself, I'm first a person, right? A human being that's um, a part of ecosystems. Um, and and therefore, I, I be a certain way. And then I also do particular behaviors and activities. And all of those are kind of rooted in um, my personhood um, and what feels good and, and what feels loving for my personhood. Um, I've, I've noticed that I really feel the best and create the best output as well when there is congruence between my inner being and my outer being. Um, and I'll get to how this connects to the land, I promise. <laughs> um, you know, it's, uh, you know, for me, I told you the story of my name and, and my background and, and being connected to the trees and the land. Um, and so it's more that, like, the trees, the land, and people are also a part of how I understand my identity. That there isn't really a me outside of the me that exists um, in connection with other people, uh, with places, with nutrients, um, with spirit. Um, And yet I'm still also fully my own person. Um, So I don't know, for me, I think I'm definitely a being to be protected. And also, Sometimes I I struggle with thinking of myself as a protector of the land because I feel like it's more that I'm in relationship with the land and that one of my guiding values is love. So when I ask myself, how can I love the land or love people? The answer points to protection, but that really has a lot more to do with the current context that we live within um, and the ways that trees, plants and animals in the land don't really have an ability to advocate for themselves the way that I have access to advocacy and power. Um, Same thing goes for children too, you know? So protector is not really like a natural role or one that I necessarily like to hold or would be inclined to hold um, outside of this kind of context, but it is one that I'm skilled and capable to hold. And so it's a loving one as well. And so I do it um, because the land and the trees, they love me back too. Um, And we're surviving this regime together. So we really are in that way protecting each other um, and being protected by each other. Personally, I'd rather be naked on a beach, you know, enjoying world peace, but we're not quite there yet. So, you know, we can be in this mutual protection relationship too. That's good. That was uh, inspiring to hear and it feel it really resonates with me. And that's like, I'm like, it, it, it's, you know, when you find those excellent moments talking with someone and being in relationship with them, even if it's, um, in this capacity over Zoom, you there are uh, sometimes people that give words to your raw feelings. And so that's what you did for me there. And so I appreciate that. And, yeah, you know, one thing that's also like sticking out is this idea of relationship, right? You brought that word to the table a couple of times. And as we know, like our work with children, um, well, let me just say this bluntly is that relationship is the key component to our humanness, right? And those relationships are not just with other humans, but our more than human relatives, our plant relatives, our animal relatives, 
our star relatives? What are our connections and our sense of relationship to to everything that is in our in our uh, coexistence with one another? And so, what we're also talking about in relationship is, and hopefully, you know, again, we're I, I think talking about healthy relationship is this idea of reciprocity and a big component in or uh, uh, avenue that teaches us reciprocity. And hopefully you can speak on this is uh, social emotional learning. You know, that's an important aspect in learning for young humans, for children and for all of us really, but it isn't quite the norm to like continue teaching it. Like we do math or reading, right? It's there's with those particular subjects, there are progressive levels um, that humans pass through as, you know, through their schooling experiences. And so all that to say and to ask, in what ways do you think social emotional learning can be woven into curriculums as an integrated part of a child's learning experience? Mm, Yeah. So, you know, social emotional learning or SEL is really more of a way of being um, then it is a progressive subject like math and sciences, like you were saying. So SEL, I think widely, and this is how I understand it, is is about identity formation, emotional management, goal achievement, community development, relationships, decision making, um, all these kinds of skills that can come out um, of school, but you have to be a little bit more intentional about how you create opportunities for young people to learn these skills. Um, And it's really not something that you can master. It's something that you continue practicing at all the time and you can get really good and feel really in your flow with it. Um, But it's kind of like going to the gym. Like if you go to the gym every day for a year, that year you're going to be super in your flow. You're going to feel very agile. Um, You know, you're going to have your strength up. But then if you stop going for six months, at the end of that six months, you're going to feel really awkward next time you go and try out that activity because you're not going to remember it in your muscle memory. It's one of those things that we're quick to forget. And I don't think that's natural necessarily. Again, I think that has more to do with the context that we find ourselves in. Similarly to what I was saying before, that my existence is a resistance to that oppressive regime. SEL in some ways is also resistance to that oppressive regime because it's a way of being that asks us to show up in a lot of countercultural ways. Uh, That being said, there are definitely lots of proven methods for growing those skills, Uh, you know, things that you can do really quick, like breathing exercises, just taking a quick movement break in in ESE that typically looks like, you know, wiggling it out <laughs> for a few minutes, maybe taking the kids outside, having them run around the playground for a little while. But there are there's so much research out there about age appropriate proven methods as well that can follow you all the way through your K-12 experience and then into adulthood too. You know, I know for me, I can tell on the days when I don't take a walk outside because my my mind's not as at ease as it would be. Um well, um, when my mind isn't as ease, as at ease, wow, <laughs> this one's hard. When my mind isn't at as much ease as it would be on the days when I take the walk, you know, I'm quicker to snap at other people. I'm quicker to make, you know, behaviors that are just maybe a little more antisocial, like 
get annoyed faster, all these different things that disrupt my ability to show up in relationships, um, you know, in a kind and, and loving and respectful way. And there's so many different ways you can actually infuse these proven methods into the classroom too. So, you know, besides just taking movement breaks, even just doing things like more group projects, you know, giving young people structured opportunity to practice skills like communication, collaborative problem solving, um, designing new solutions. And those are all things that you can just kind of tuck in really easily to math and science. Um, But it's going to take a little bit more time, intention, and creativity than just giving a times tables worksheet. Um, You're going to have to come up with a way where you can actually hold the space, nurture these young people into becoming humans, and teach them math on the side. There is a, a at the beginning of what you said that uh, social emotional learning isn't one of those. I don't know exactly. I forget exactly what you said, but it reminded me of the idea of culture, right? Like it's something you have to live to understand. And a big piece of culture and social emotional learning is connecting language with it, and just the everyday of uh, living it out. And so, you know, for all the educators out there, think you know. Uh, taking these words of wisdom from Sylvia and, and applying it to how are you going to live this and not just teach it as an add-on, right? Because it, it, a lot of times when we do think about the under the lens of uh, multicultural education, the approach is just to add on, right? And But when you add on without good intention, those things fall off and they don't live and they don't sustain. And so it needs to be just something that we... Yeah, just live in practice. And in that way, I do find we start shifting uh, teaching practices in a more like indigenous way, really. Yeah, thank you so much for saying that, Nick. Um, You know, I understand myself as an indigenous person. I'm not indigenous to the Americas. Um, I'm of Black and Jewish American heritage. But um, for me, and, you know, maybe you can add on to this if it doesn't jive with you. I I understand my indigeneity to be more about remembering my connection to my ancestral lands, remembering that I am a person who comes from peoples that are connected to the land, and then being able to live out um, that way of being in, uh, you know, this current context. I find myself in several thousands and oceans away from where my peoples were originally born. Um, and I would I would say I completely agree with you. I do think it makes education more indigenous. Um, and I think another thing that's coming up for me is just a metaphor with that garden that I was talking about before. You know, my father taught me how to do this when he showed me how to garden because a garden requires cultivation. It's not something that you just set up and then it sits there and goes until it um, meets its and it's something where you go, you be in a relationship with it. Different plants need different watering schedules. You know, maybe this one needs a little fertilizer today. Maybe that one needs to be pruned a little bit. Um, and culture and being able to live out these more indigenous ways of being, it, it's like that too. It requires that cultivation. It's like you said in something else that I read that you wrote, Sylvia, it's around has as we're talking about building organizations networks and relationships for sustainability it's not necessarily how can we teach it but how can we learn from the wisdoms of the forest 
So you read my article. <laughs> you know, a little bit in my research, you know, honestly, <laughs> it makes sense when you say Sylvia has everything, you know, and I think about that because we, we have everything. And hopefully this sounds familiar because <laughs> we'll talk about future building and system for sustainability. And why does that sound familiar, Sylvia? <laughs> that's, <laughs> oh my gosh, that's the title of my book. <laughs> and it's coming out next month. <laughs> gotcha. Coming out, drop in March, 2023. Where can they find that? They can find that on my website, haseverything.co. It's not .com, it's .co, because it has everything in co. Because um, it has everything, that's me and all y'all. So that's co. Um, you can find that on my Instagram page, sylv.haseverything. Um, and both of those will have links to my Shopify. Yes. And um, yeah, so that's a, it's a great book. I'm really excited. I I'm actually re recording later this afternoon for my own podcast, and it's my first solo episode, and I'm going to be talking all about chapter one. Um, so, yeah, you got my heart rate escalating. <laughs> I'm excited. Why we add it? What's the name of your podcast? My podcast is called The Revolution of Wholeness, and it's all about transformation. So it's about how um, I, well... It is, I, I didn't write down what it's about. <laughs> um, <clears throat> let me retry that. So it is called The Revolution of Wholeness, and it is a podcast about transformation. So I sit down with people who are doing the work of rebuilding after having torn down some oppressive systems um, to chat with them about what is this future building like? What can we learn from it? And how can we implement that in our everyday lives? So the premise is that, yeah, a lot needs to change. And it's not all going to happen in a day. There's already been change work happening for a long time. What can we learn about that as far as little incremental movements we can all make? Because that's where it starts with each of us. So let's get... What was your Instagram again? Sorry. Oh, my Instagram. Yes. Get it in. Get it right. Get it tight. Sorry. Um, my Instagram was sylv, S-Y-L-V, dot has everything. H-A-S-E-V-E-R-Y-T-H-I-N-G. Got it. So as Nick, as you go and get a new follower, uh, was it follow back Saturday? Something like that. Anyways, um, the state of Washington is the first state in the nation that licensed outdoor preschool programs. And right, and I like to think of that as a testimony to our forward thinking and our ability to kind of get things done. But I'm gonna pause because as much as we do pat ourselves on the back for being, you know, air quotes progressive, we also need to address the elephant in the room. And that's the barriers to employment for educators of color in outdoor spaces and in green fields, which was, you know, one of the uh, one of the convos I was having the other day at the state level when we we're talking about, all right, how do we move forward from this? And so, what I want to pick your brain on is a couple of different questions, right? What are some recommendations, uh, cultural or systemic recommendations, that you will want people to consider as they think about? how they can support workforce equity 
as it pertains to getting more educators of color in outdoor programs or um, people of color in green fields in general? We'll be right back. These last few months have brought upon a lot of changes in Nick's and Mike's lives. New cities, new jobs, new adventures, us going independent. Shout out to all the peeps who supported us along the way. And now we have a new email address. You can email us at napcast206 at gmail.com for all your NAPCAST questions, ideas, and thoughts. And while our new website isn't quite up and running yet, you can still find us where you listen to all your music and podcasts. Spotify, Apple Music, Google, and so much more. So what should we chat about next? You tell us. And as always, thank you for listening. Yeah, thanks for that question, Mike. It's a really good one. Um, So like for me, the way that I see it, culture really is systemic. um, And culture begins in the minds and hearts of individuals. And it becomes something that whole communities and regions of people agree to. They might not agree to it willingly, but they agree to it for a reason. Maybe they're trading off their survival for agreeing to this. So in my book, We Have Everything, I actually speak to this concept that I call domination over mindset. So that's a mindset that really kind of creates an operating system in your mind where much of your beliefs are rooted in this idea that you need to dominate over somebody else in order to get your needs met. And when that's one of your core beliefs, it really guides a lot of your behaviors, whether you realize it's doing that or not. And so the whole premise with my book and really my answer to this question is that we really do have everything that we need uh, to start behaving differently and showing up differently and creating new agreements, creating new cultures. Um, But it's something that we really have to remember. And it's something that some of us are not so far away from forgetting as others of us. I think that when we're in this system in this, you know, there are so many people operating under domination over mindset and, you know, layer on top of that systems of racism specifically. We'll just use that one as an example. There are all these stories being told that certain people are better than other people, that certain people are more worthy than other people. And a lot of that has to do with um, really easy to identify, you know, features about people, whether it's the way their body is or the way their skin color is or, you know, uh, whatever their presenting gender is. And then on top of that, we have all these people that are just being born into these bodies, born into these genders, born into these expressions without asking for it. Um, And then the story says, oh, because you were born with this then this is where you're at in the hierarchy. Oh, you were born with this. This is where you're at in the hierarchy. And people start agreeing to that. Again, sometimes not willingly, but you trade in your survival for agreeing to that. Um, And so I think that really a lot of this begins with the self-work of recognizing that this system and this culture and this way of being has infiltrated you um, and that there may be things that you've done, things that you've believed, that are incongruent with your supposed values. 
um, and being able to just admit that and accept that about yourself um, and then begin the work of changing the way that you believe. And I think a lot of that also has to do with changing the way that you approach yourself because these system, like these practices and cultures of judgment, they're not just something we point outward toward other people, like judgment, punishment, culture. Those are things that we do to ourselves as well. So when you can begin with yourself, start just cleaning up a little bit of your relationship with yourself, remembering that you are a beautiful being that's worthy of love and care and treat yourself as such. Um, that'll start to change how you treat others as well. It'll change the way that you see relationships with others. And it'll begin to also change your beliefs, which will then change your mindset too. So I think the work really begins with yourself. And then the other piece I would say is there are some people that are really um, not as far out from forgetting these ways of being than other people. So it's important to listen to those people, listen to indigenous folks, listen to black folks, listen to women, etc. So, yeah, I think that's what I would say. It reminds me of like what we talk a lot, you and Nick, I, about power over children rather than power with. And so when we engage in having power over children, it, it, it the learning environment doesn't become about them. It becomes about what do we feel comfortable, what do we want to teach. And so it all then goes back to talking about how teaching is political. Yeah. It sure you might not have a stance on on X, Y, or Z, but what you choose to teach or what you don't choose to teach is political. Mm -hmm. You take a side. Yeah. And and there's that, you know, the third aspect of the power over power with is the power on, right? That um, in which I felt like Sylvia, you were speaking to of get connected to those people who um who haven't forgotten those indigenous ways and that's how we can power on each other right mm -hmm. to like have this ongoing uh catalysm of effect to sort of a, a progressive domino fall if you will and uh what i've been thinking about is that disconnect that some indigenous and people of color and uh, let's just say, I'll just say people of color in general have, you know, uh, forgotten that connection to the land. And so, and I often, we have, um, we have a few families of, or quite a few families of color at, at the preschool that I work at. And, and often they're like, why are you guys outside all the time? You know, my kid's going to catch cold. It's like, no, that's not how, colds work and sure your immune system may lower but a virus the virus causes the cold so if anything your child being indoors is going to most likely get them um the virus but don't tell my mom know, there's don't tell my mom, don't tell my mom that She'll just say, <laughs> yeah. put some vapor rub on your feet and you good exactly oh uh, yeah <laughs> so it's you know um so that domination of other when you were saying that or domination over others reminds me that colonization, right. As a mechanism has disconnected the colonized um, in, in indigenous folk from our identities. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, when Mike, you're saying that there's barriers to getting more educators of color into the outdoor spaces, I feel like it's really, um, I mean, they, that certainly exists and at the same time, I think that there's that 
the systemic piece of culture, right? Like that a lot of us have been disconnected from our culture and ways of life that are deeply connected to the land. And so I, for me, I feel like we need to start there if getting more, and this is, I guess, the question that I'm getting at with you, Sylvia, is, you know, that this really getting more educators of color in the outdoor settings begins with breaking down those perceptions of the outdoors for families of color. So that way we can start having um, these dispositions grow from the family up into mm-hmm. systems, right? Yeah. And so I'm wondering what advice would you give to disrupting narratives about the outdoors for communities of color? Mm. That's such a juicy question. <laughs> um, and there's so much there. I think that one place I would start is just with storytelling. So again, like kind of similar to what I was saying before, there's all these narratives and stories that help to create culture, that it become things that we agree to. Again, not always willingly, but um, there's a lot of stories about environmental education and who belongs there. There's a lot of stories about outside and what happens to you there. And those stories have been passed down through generations from fa- through families and in families, uh, fa- from family members that you trust. And the reason why you trust the story that they're giving you is because this person has taken care of you your whole life and has been around and supported you to get to where you're at so that you can then have a place to jump off of and spread your wings and go live your life. So, you know, like when Mike was joking earlier, don't tell my mom that, that she's about to catch the virus inside, not outside. You know, there there's kind of, it was a joke, but there's kind of like that generational storytelling to that, you know, where it's like her mom probably told her to do that. She trusts her mom. And so now she's telling Mike to do that. And she's like, I'm your mom. You trust me. I'm telling you this story. This is for your safety. This is, you know, something that will protect you in this big, scary world. Um, and so I think having some honor and reverence for the stories and the method of storytelling that has happened throughout generations is really important. Um, because when you introduce a new story to somebody who lives in a culture like that, you're not just giving them a new way to think about it. You're also asking them to give up something that's been a part of them for generations. And so being able to just know that. Like, as a practitioner, I don't think you have to, like, make it this big thing, like, oh, are you ready to grieve your family's story about catching colds now with me? Let's have, like, a grief circle. Like, it doesn't have to be this big, like, la-la-la event. But just, I think, having some awareness of that in yourself as a practitioner, because then it can uh, change the way that you might approach, um, you know, young people of color that you know that want to get into the field or families um, to support them with creating these new stories. Um, And I think also like developing relationships with these families is crucial as well, because if you're going to ask them to give up something they trust and take on a new thing that you're giving them, they really don't have any reason to do that if they don't trust you. And so, um, you know, creating a a genuine, authentic relationship that's trust based, I think is really important as well. And then also, like, if there are methods that you can use at your preschool or in your networks where you can do more of this storytelling as a group, too, 
that can be good too because then you're starting to build new myths together and and have like a shared mythology for what is environmental education like for me my father is a black man and he was my first environmental educator so like i have no reason not to believe that black men belong in environmental education but that's because of the first story that i received and continued to receive year after year after year after year after year is my father a black man is a gardener and he can teach me about being outside and all these things. And so, you know, I have the privilege and the benefit of having been raised with that story. So many people out here are very, uh, they have a deficit of stories of our people outside. And again, that has to do with, you know, media, racism, subjugation of people's domination, land, la, 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 la. But that's what I would say to do it. And it so it really has a lot to do with storytelling. And so as I was thinking about storytelling and connecting, uh, connecting to past generations and ancestors, I thought about the immigrant community that I'm currently working with. I think about the language, revitalizing indigenous languages, um, movement that Nick, I know that you're a part of. Nick, do you do you also work with immigrant communities, right? I mean, it. I think it varies from year to year. Um, I would say this year is a little less than the last than last year and the year before that, or school school years. Gotcha. Well, just thinking about nature and nature based learning, uh, especially since in my work with the Head Start communities involve immigrant families. I just think about how can we use nature to support immigrants in enjoying urban spaces while at the same time preserving and respecting like their cultural backgrounds? Mm. That is a big question. I think I'm I'm not as familiar with immigrant populations in King County and Washington State as I maybe should be. Um, but I do know that nature-based learning benefits everyone. And when it comes to urban spaces and being able to enjoy urban spaces, nature-based learning, I think again, like really deserves to have kind of a story revitalization happen. Um, there's this story that exists that nature is separate from the human built environment. And I think one way, you know, I, I know a lot of immigrant populations live in urban environments. And one way, one tool again to use um, to support that connection with the land there is storytelling that really illustrates how nature um, and the human built environment are not so different. I also wonder about, you know, I used to work at one of the urban farms um, here in Seattle, and we were doing some language revitalization as well because. At the time, it was one of the most diverse zip codes in the United States. Lots of immigrants, lots of languages spoken, and and trying to figure out how to make it so that the space was accessible to everyone who was there. So we would plant all different kinds of foods there. We even ended up building a greenhouse so that some people that came from like more tropical spaces could have more of their uh, foods that they remembered from back home. And it was a pretty big success. It was fun. It was enlightening, I think, for everyone there. Um, and there were also a lot of challenges, like, you know, trying to make sure that 
we can create signage that has like 10 different languages on it um, and still gets a good point across. But when I looked at the garden when we were finished, I saw really such a great example of biodiversity and not just like the way you might think of in like an old growth forest where there's all this natural biodiversity, um, but really a biodiversity that is um, the effect of lots of forced migration, um, lots of, you know, forced movement of peoples across regions and regions and regions that are thousands and thousands of miles long and people coming together and saying, well, I guess this is the place we find ourselves in now. How are we going to work together and actually make it make sense? So, you know, I think at the end of the day, all people everywhere have an indigenous connection to the land uh, somewhere. Maybe it's several ancestors back, but it exists somewhere. And there's something about that that is really, really hard for us to forget as a species. So when we're able to come together, you know, utilize these natural spaces, um, it can, I think, also help us remember how much we do have in common uh, while also celebrating our differences. So, Mike, when you were uh, when you had asked me that question, I was reminded of my uh, my homie over in Yakima, Victor Cardenas, and he I was talking to him about the idea of outdoor preschool for migrant families, because he's in the early childhood field and he works with, uh, uh, yeah, migrant families who are looking for, you know, early care and, and, and really promoting, um, trying to empower the communities to, to lift their children up and, you know, also encouraging them like, Hey, what you're doing is good for brain development and whatnot. But he had a funny response when I was like, Hey, what is outdoor, you know, what would outdoor education look like for, a migrant community coming through Wenatchee or Yakima. And he's like, uh, he's like, bro, we do that anyway. You know, yeah. the kids like you go play outside, <laughs> like go. And, and I was like, that's, it was a very good like check for myself to think that like, Oh yeah. And cause that's how I grew up too. Right. Just like go outside. Um, and it's a good check for myself that like these, polished ideas of outdoor education are things that we've already done. These are, I love this, my new favorite word um, in from academia, epistemologies, you know, our ways of knowing and the way that we learn uh, to know is so it has always been rooted in the land and our relationship with the land. And so it was a nice reminder that like, you know, he's like, Hey, yeah, this is, this is our way of operating and has been, um, and, and, but then I'm also reminded that like, you know, it'd be interesting to see if how many of those, like how, how, how much time do these children get outside and, and are their parents or caregivers like sort of, uh, disillusioned with this idea of like, we got to ha- give them fancy things so that way they can, you know, so it's sort of a marker of like climbing up quote unquote, but, um, and so as we give them iPads and screens and things that we're actually starting to disconnect them from the land. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just rant- rambling right now, but I was just sort of reminded of Victor's uh, comment of like, this is how we have always been. It goes to like, uh, Nick, instead of doing land acknowledgements, we do land remembrance. And so as you were saying, 
it reminded me of how you always talk about that. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Me? Nick. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> pop, pop quiz, Sylvia. Yeah. Yeah. I was um, like, what? <laughs> so, you know, the idea that I bring up in, in our land remembrances oh, rather than acknowledgements, because acknowledging that's just one like step, right? And I like to equate it to, I can acknowledge that it broke into your house and I'm crashing on your couch, but what do you want me to do about it, right? Do you want me to like uh, just continue on or how would you want me to go about that? And that's essentially what has happened for Native Americans here in the United States. Um, also, the system of education that we're all a part of and, uh, and especially us three, because we're like in it, um, we have to remember that education is founded on the erasure and removal of Native people from their lands and to uh, acculturate and assimilate Native people. And um, it, as well as Black folk that were brought over, right? Um, and so, you know, once the, the federal government realized that it was more expensive to keep fighting wars against native people. It's like, well, let's subjugate them to schooling. And with this, I, uh, this promise of like, Hey, they're going to come out better for it. Um, and using the children as bargaining chips to, uh, so that way the adults would play nicely and give up their land. And so land education are so woven together, um, in this, tragically fascinating concept that we now call public education and it we have to remember that uh and, and it was a report that was released just last may of 2022 um, from the department of the interior that acknowledged that schooling and education was specifically used to nab up land so if the federal government is acknowledging that if the perpetrator is acknowledging this abuse that's been done now what? Right. Great. You acknowledge that you abused and you've exploited and, and murdered people. But now we're at a point of where we need to reconcile thing, uh, reconcile all of this. And part of for me, part of that reconciliation is to. Um, to if, if we're going part of that reconciliation is for education systems to start orienting themselves to more indigenous ways. Because that's going to, if we're basically using the thing that was uh, using the weapon, the weapon of choice of education that was to kill off our people in spiritually, physically, and emotionally, well, now we're going to take that weapon and use it for our own good, right? And not even, and maybe weapon isn't a good word, but we're going to take that tool to reclaim, re identify, um, and re indigenize this schooling uh, or this concept of education. Um, as I'm learning more about indigenous epistemologies and and ways of being, it um, it reminds me that a lot of what we consider best practices, right, child center practices, are in fact indigenous ways that have been co opted, again polished off and rebranded through a Eurocentric point of view, and all these old white men, developmental theorists, get all the credit for these groundbreaking things that, again, we have already know and already did. Um, and, and again, all of that is tied into our relationship with land, 
-hmm. And so, yeah, that's kind of, um, in a way that we break it down during these remembrances. And so to tie that all together, I want to put on that third, that thread, especially with this next question, because when we think about nature, we just kind of simply acknowledge and, you know, to various degrees of effectiveness. I think my voice just cracked there. Um, we connected to science and, and climate change and, and slavery. If you're thinking, you know, if you're really thinking critically about it, um, as well as trauma. But what I really hear is how we connect it and we acknowledge and we remember it as nature, as art. And so as I look at your backdrop, Sylvia, um, with all your wonderful art that I'm assuming you created. No, no. Um, I did one of these. Gotcha. But I'm sure we can all find it on your website, which was what again? <laughs> Has everything.co. Perfect. Uh, what is the relationship between the two, nature and art, and how do you imagine that we can use it to inspire and challenge young children? Mm, yeah, nature is art. Period. <laughs> um, you know, one thing I notice uh, from nature is that it's good at being pretty. Um, you know, people go from far and wide to go see natural um spaces whether that's you know like Sedona Arizona or the the Great Lakes or the Grand Canyon or wherever those places are with like the walls of the rocks that are really pretty I don't know it's always sunny I'm assuming it's New Mexico somewhere like that I don't know um you know I think that beauty exists because nature exists so like earth is a beautiful place um and you know I was made fun of a lot growing up for wanting things to be pretty or cute or put together um and I was told that beauty is really second to function um but for me beauty is an integral part of something functioning um, and I really do have Earth to thank as my mentor for that. Um, Nick, when you were talking about uh, the land remembrances, I thought it was interesting that you you corrected yourself about using the word weapon. And you were like, well, actually, it's a tool. And I feel like, you know, there are so many things on Earth that are like that. Beauty can be a tool. Um, schoolhouses can be a tool. Um, relationships can be a tool. And like, you know, like the schoolhouse, it could be a tool that's used as a weapon or it could be a tool that's used to build. And, you know, there's lots of examples of beauty being used as a weapon. Have you all heard of the sirens, like those mermaid women that hang out on the rocks and they sing? And it's specifically just to use that beauty um, and art to lead sailors to their death. Um, but ultimately, they're using that weapon to protect the island you know, because they know that these sailors do not mean the island well. And so they have begun to wield this very powerful tool as um, a weapon of self-defense. Now, whether that's violence or not, I don't know. We might have to do another podcast to get into that. Um, but my point here is, is that just like with the schoolhouse, just like with um, any tool, beauty can be a, a, 
a tool that's used to destroy or to build. And I think that um, for me, it's always been something that helps me build. And I think, you know, for all of the, the cuties out there in the world, you know, we talk all about how great art is for brain development and how great it is, you know, for emotional development and empathy development and patience and all these different soft skills. What about it's just pretty to look at? It is just nice to look at. Listen, there's a lot of little kids out there that are cute. They want nice things. <laughs> they want things to be pretty that are the kind of kid that will just sit out in a grass field and look at a daffodil in the wind for hours because that's what's interesting to them. And I think, you know, those are the kids that are, you know, sensitive, they're quiet. And, you know, art and beauty is a place of reprieve for them. You know, we live in a very loud, hustle bustle world that goes really fast and it's often too fast for a four-year-old especially that that kind of kid that's sensitive wants to sit down look at the flowers um, and so art can be a space for them where they can start creating have some of that mind body flow check out from the fastness of the world and be in a place that makes them feel good and that's important and on top of that Art is good for everyone because it does promote, you know, dexterity of your hand, uh, some of that connection between the mind and your motor functions, you know, being able to imagine something and then make it actually happen in real life, in the physical form. That's a really powerful tool to or skill to grow. Um, so there's lots of reasons. But for me, you know, at the end of the day, nature is beauty and beauty just is enough in and of itself. You know, as you were talking about that, it reminds me of a, a, a project that my colleague did uh, around graffiti and redefining what what is art? Because at the end of the day, art is an expression of, th of thoughts, emotions, of intuition, desires. Um, and it's even more personal than that. And so when we say things and tell children that, oh, that's not art, that's graffiti. It's, it's redefining... And having power, like we we're talking about, power over things, control over things, when in reality, we look at Banksy that's happening in London. And we say, oh, that's beautiful and that's art, but Banksy is most likely a white male. And so we're having control and, and telling and putting children into boxes once again around what is acceptable and what's not. Yeah, it's like Jackson Pollock's splatter paintings right those are beautiful <laughs> i mean i find them they're intriguing for sure but i think because of who who he is as a as a white male it's like groundbreaking art right but and, um something you said sylvia that resonated with me once again is this idea of high classifying and categorizing like beauty and functionality and how they can't exist together i think when we put them in a hierarchy but really they're like it's that yin and yang right like they complement and they work together and um and you i think you really named it out with that uh, with an idea of interconnectedness that when somebody is creating beauty uh, or something that is beautiful to them that it is serving a function in that process right they're like one in the same yep. and and nature shows us that you know um in a, in a variety of ways. And I often try to remind my very religious father that his idea of the supreme being of God, Jesus Christ, 
has put clues and hints of how we should live our lives in nature, right? When we think of like just the diversity of nature and whether that diversity is in species and how they all coexist together. Um, and also when you break it down to like gender identity, right? Like though there are clues that this, that these are just the functions and beauty of life. Um, now how we, whether or not we agree with that and, and use that against other people, then, you know, that's a whole other thing. And I don't want to like go into <laughs> the, the religious sort of manifestations of that stuff. But my point being is that nature gives like what you said, we already have what we need. It gives, it reminds us spiritually, physically, and emotionally what is already there and what is important. And I, you know, so it's art as interconnectedness is what's resonating with me. And Mike, your mom brought this up, you know, at the top of it, how, how she is a protector of earth and, and in return, she is being protected by earth. So what I hear from you is how nature is from what I hear from your mom, that nature is no longer othered like we often other different races, but it's a remembrance of who she is and how the land and the environment is that which she is right. That we're connect interconnected in this way of being. So, you know, nature not only captures our emotions and our imaginations, but it helps remind us of who we are. Um, you know, children, I think, are direct examples of that. They come in already of this super connected being to this uh, supernatural world. And so, Sylvia, how do you think we can leverage this idea of interconnectedness in the lives of young children? And how can this cultivate children's ecological identity? you know, and promote pro-environmental behavior. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love that connection you made between identity and behavior. Um, I think that, you know, that's kind of what I've been beating over the head or been beating people's heads over. I don't know. I don't do that. So I don't even know how to talk about it. Um, but that's what I've been saying over and over and over again, um, is that behavior is really a fruit of your identity and your beliefs. Um, and, you know, the truth is we're all interconnected. It's not some woo-woo, random spiritual belief. It's a literal fact of life. We see this in brain science and the way that the human brain is designed to interact with, um, you know, other human brains. Um, we see this in the way that we build our communities. Um, you know, certain people contribute certain things. We need different things, different, different people to uh, serve in different roles in order to get things done. We're all kind of here um, as different moving parts of the ecosystem. Um, and so when we really accept this fact of interconnectedness rather than pretending it's not real um, and understand all the different ways that this fact of life um, can make ourselves our, our lives actually better when we accept and begin to leverage it, um, that's when we are actually in a place where we can start teaching young people uh, for that too. So when we accept it for ourselves as adults, then we can actually orient ourselves toward teaching young people um, the skills, knowledge, and mindsets that they need to best leverage what's really just their biology. Um, the funny thing about all of this 
like domination over oppressive subjugation BS is that it actually interferes with our biology more than it leverages our biology, um, which is really funny. And the cool thing about this is that it doesn't just scientifically make sense. It actually also empowers people to grow up, um, able to make the most of their lives, and then they're more happier, they're more fulfilled, therefore less violent. Um, it's really a win-win-win. And the funny thing for me, too, is that the crux of, it's like the root of all of the problems that I see in the world and the medicine for all of those problems are at the same place. It's just, again, like you were saying, are we going to use these tools that we have access to? Are we going to use these skills, these knowledges, these mindsets as tools of destruction or as tools of building and growth? And so we want to leave you with one final question. And so it's always important for us to to ask this um, when we do these napcasts or other workshops on our side, and it's it's our attempt to give us give up control because we're the hosts, and so we can control the questions. Um, and so for this final question, it's really an open ended one. What's something that we missed, or you wished we as educators of color color chatting with you? that we should be asking you whether that's from your hat as an educator of color or as a consultant or as an artist. And that really gets at who you are, what's at your heart, what's at your core, like we talked about earlier. And so we want to leave you with the space right now to explore that with us. Hmm. I had a question planned and now I don't like it anymore. <laughs> um. I think I would say, you know, what for me, I think when I think about all this uh, work and how countercultural it is, um, it it becomes really clear how important it is um, just to have reinforcements of this way of being that, you know, the three of us are talking about that we want to have that I talk about with other people um, on so many different levels. So being able to create a life for myself um, that reinforces that way of being, obviously there's beauty everywhere in my house, as you can see. Um, you know, sticking to these guiding values in my relationships, um, doing what I can to really only work with people who are also of this same similar uh, way of being. They don't have to necessarily be of the same like mindset or complete belief agreement as me, but um, interested in a way of being that prioritizes relationship, connection, community. Um and seeing what I can to um, create culture, cultural and network shifts as well. But also having that reinforced because I'm not doing this alone. Um, you know, I'm really doing this alongside other people. 
So I guess my question would be, um, what is your plan to stay accountable to yourself and other people? And I know that I'm supposed to answer that question and I can, but I'm wondering if you all would like to answer it too. <laughs> um, but I can start. So what is my plan? I think for me, how do I stay accountable is to um, continue prioritizing beauty for beauty's sake. Because um, for me, that's really a practice in remembering that I'm worthy. Um, I appreciated you two mentioning that this is a practice in letting go of control. I think there's different ways of being that the regime puts on us that uh, stick harder than others. So maybe being in control is one for the two of you. But for me, I think remembering my worthiness is is one. So creating a beautiful life is a way that I stay accountable. And it's also fun. What about y'all? Uh, for me, it's the accountability is to constantly ask, um, is what I'm thinking, doing, acting, speaking, how can I relate that to indigenous epistemologies <laughs> um, and ways of being, right? Uh, am I, you know, just constantly reminding myself um Anything that I'm thinking, yeah, like, where is this coming from? Is it coming from a, a colonized mindset, which, of course, most of our ways of being currently are. And and so it's just those, I'm hoping to have my colonized mindset die by a thousand cuts, right? So mm -hmm. each time I question, and um, I just take little chops at it. And, and again, because this takes time, and just recognizing that, and that comes from um, reading and and read and high reading and staying committed to reading indigenous scholars and and there's one particular article that I've like had right here um, off to the side that I'm looking at as we've been having this conversation and it's called wisdom sits in places and and it's essentially that our places and our locations that we're in our natural settings carries those stories those identities and there's wisdom in there and we have to go to those places drink it up as the article says drink it up so that way our wisdom can start growing and filling our sort of spiritual cups and so for me it's also a commitment to finding wisdom in those places mm -hmm. and i'd love to send you that article after this And so for me, two things are coming up. It's the idea of fertilization and how am I letting the little things fertilize me as well as not just being recipient of it, but how am I going out in the world and fertilizing others to continue this work? Because as we talked about reciprocity, it's a, it's a mutual relationship. So it's not just what I'm getting, but how am I also nourishing others and taking the time to just since our theme today is about, you know, social emotional learning and connected to nature, thinking about how am I letting, 
how am I playing in the rain, right? Splashing in the rain. Sometimes I'm like, oh my God, the wet socks, I can't do it. But <laughs> I see the children in our class, how they love and they're enamored um, and they give love back to the rain and splashing in puddles. And, you know, maybe it's not that much since I'm in sunny San Diego. Maybe it's seeing the the feather that's flying by me and feeling blessed about that. So that's the first thing that were coming up for me. And the second thing goes back to my mom, right? And thinking about when she was talking about being a protector and uh, being protected by it. And so as I think about her as a Black woman, how am I walking in this world and make sure that I'm protecting and I'm loving up our Black women in, in ways in which our nuance that are cultural that that are complicated in in all the different ways in which uh in which they need to be loved and so just being ever more cognizant cognizant of those ways um that it's living especially not just black women but uh multi-racial women afro-latinx um etc etc a big thanks to you, Sylvia. Yeah. I couldn't do it without you. <laughs> that was fun. Thanks, Sylvia. Appreciate you and your good work. So make sure y'all go out to haseverything.co. Pick up the book. We have everything hitting in March 2023. Uh, and check out the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure. <laughs>